Open with me in your Bible to James chapter 1. We're in verses 19 through 21 this morning. James chapter 1, verses 19, 19 through 21. By the way, before we read, couldn't help but think in the, the last song that we sang, Before the Throne of God Above. You read a passage like this, and it's talking about being slow to speak, slow to anger, and then in 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, right? You can't help but think to yourself in the light of God's word, that I fall far short of what this passage is telling me to do, which is why it's good for us to sing things like, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, real guilt, real sin, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Our hope is Christ. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not work, or does not achieve, or does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility... Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help now? Father, according to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that is ours, by the ministry of your Spirit, we ask that you would not only command what you will, but give what you command. Help us to receive your word this morning and every day. In Jesus' name and for his sake we ask this. Amen. All right, so starting at verse 19, James seems to sort of turn a little bit of a corner. We spent about 18 verses, well, not about, 18 verses talking about the Christian's response to trials and the tests of our faith. What do we need to remember? What do we need to know? How do we walk through these trials? What's the eternal perspective that we need to keep in mind? And when you get to verse 19, the idea of trials seems to be set aside, or at least trials as a topic, and you seem to be moving into, into something new. I want, to, want us to observe, though, that this is not sort of a, a random change of topics, but that there seems to be something of a design here that we have in the text. So if you go back to verse 18, which is where we were last week, remember that in reminding us, persuading us, convincing us of the fact that God, even in the midst of trials, is nevertheless infinitely and eternally good, and always so, James ends that confession of our faith that God is eternally good with a proof or an evidence of God's goodness, which is our own salvation, right? In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth 
That's a demonstration of God's goodness to undeserving sinners. But as he says that, he says, He brought us forth by the word of truth. So it's by God's word that we enter into this new life that we have in Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. For it, the gospel, the word of Christ, the message of Christ, is the power to salvation to everyone who believes. This word brings us into this new life. If you go from verse 18 and you skip down to verse 21, this little brief introduction in verses 19 through 21, this transition, these transition verses end on the conclusion that we are to receive the implanted word. So it was by his word that he brought us forth, that he gave us life. And now in a few moments we'll see in verse 21 that this word that has brought us forth we are to receive. So I think what James is doing here, having ended his discussion of trials on a reminder that we can trust God and we can believe that he's good because ultimately God gave us life and he did that for a good purpose. Now James is going to shift his focus a little bit and at least for a chapter and a half or so, some people would argue even more, James is going to articulate through a, a, a variety of different subjects and topics what this new life ought to look like. For those of us who have new life in Christ, what does this life look like? So we want to take, take note of two things in, this, in these three verses, in verses 19 through 21. We'll try to sum it up this way. Number one, that everyone God brings to life must live by his righteous standard. Everyone, without exception, Everyone God brings to life must then live by his righteous standard. And number two, that this righteous life that we're to live comes by our response to God's word. Everyone that God gives life is expected, must live according to God's standard of righteousness. And that righteous standard that we live for, that we strive for, is determined, is governed by our response to his word. So number one, everyone that God brings to life must live by his righteous standard. Verses 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The structure here is important in terms of the motivation. Right? The command to be slow to speak and slow to anger, the reason for that command in verse 19 is given in verse 20. The reason that we as Christians, as followers of Christ, as God's people, are to be slow in our speech and in our anger is because, verse 20, our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. 
So if you want to just sort of get to the nub of verses 19 and 20, you would do that by recognizing that what James is communicating to us is that our lives, these new lives that we have been given, is meant to be a striving or a living out, a working out of God's righteousness. That's what we're striving for. Which produces a little bit of tension for us because we've been told, well, not just by crazy people, we've been told by God himself in the scriptures that we already are righteous. So if I'm already righteous in Christ and because of Christ, why am I trying to work righteousness? You, do you hear that question? If I'm already righteous, what does it matter if my life produces righteousness? I'm already good as far as my standing with the Lord is concerned. Right? Is, is this sort of a works-based righteousness that James is slipping in here? By the way, this is, this is crucial for your understanding when you get to a passage later in James, when James says that faith without works is dead, and he makes the bold, very provocative statement that men like Abraham were justified, declared right by their works. What in the world are you going to do with that? Well, we're not in chapter 2 just yet. All right? But let me at least lay something of a groundwork for some of the things that we'll need to consider when we get there that is still relevant and pertinent to this passage here. There are two ways in which we need to think about God's righteousness in our lives. The first is to say, and we can draw on passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, referring to Christ, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, so that we might become or we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So that's Paul saying, if you have been united to Christ, you are standing right in your relationship with God. You have the righteousness of Christ. That's new birth. That's regeneration. That's justification, being declared right with God. But the necessary entailment of that new birth, which brings with it our justification, is that for everyone that God declares to be righteous, declares to be right because of the work of Christ on their behalf, if he calls you righteous, he then sets about making you righteous. Do you hear the difference? If you belong to him, if you stand united to Christ, if your life is hidden in Christ, that means that one of the things that God is doing and is determined and sure to do in your life is to not only call you righteous, but to make you actually righteous in the way that you live so that more and more you begin to look like the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been given and provided to you. Therefore, while God does unilaterally of his own will and work, bring to life dead, rebellious sinners, 
outside of anything that we can do, once he breathes into us his spirit of life, he then picks us up out of the grave, sets us on our feet, and then says, now it's time for you to learn how to walk in a righteous manner. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must follow him in righteousness. If you are not pursuing, do not desire, are not working for, by the grace and power of God's Spirit, for the righteousness of God to be made real in your own life, if you have no desire to be made more like Christ, then either one of two things would be true of you. Either one, you need to examine your confession and bring your life in line with your confession. Or two, you do not have Christ. You cannot be born of God's Spirit by His Word and not have with that new birth a new nature that comes with it. Having said that, go back then to verse 19. Now this is obviously is not exhaustive. If righteous living is what we're striving for, if righteous living is what God would expect His children to be working out in their lives by the power that He has given us, well, practically speaking, what, what does righteous living look like? Well, in part, it looks like what he says in verse 19. It looks like being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Everyone who has been born again, everyone must be, not should be, must be be. This is an imperative. This is a command. You must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Does that describe your life? Parents, if, if we were to come to your home and we were to ask your kids, tell us about mom and dad. Would little junior Little Sally say, my dad is just so slow to get frustrated and angry with us. I don't know that I've ever heard him raise his voice. Snickers going through the congregation. No? Don't come to my home. All right, another question. If, if you are gainfully employed in this season of your life, if your co-workers were asked to describe you, would they describe you this way? Or are you known to be the office hothead? Are, are you the one in the office that always seems to have the answers to questions whether or not people are even asking the questions? 
There's always something that you have to tell someone or they have to know when you're irritated or frustrated or when, you, when they've let you down. Are you slow to speak and slow to anger? Now some of you are of the, the testy type, right? You're scrupulous in the way that you read the scriptures. And so you say, ah, merit. Yes, it says slow to speak and slow to anger, but it doesn't say that we can't speak or we can't get angry. Right? Did you hear what JT did earlier in the scripture reading today? He read the passage from Ephesians that says, be angry. And I'm trying to tell you not to be angry from James 1. Say, oh, so there it is. Be slow to anger. You can be angry. There are times to be angry. And let's not forget, Merit, even Jesus. Even Jesus got angry. He flipped tables. It's true. Jesus did get angry. He did flip tables. But tell me, on your reading of the Gospels, of the number of times that Jesus flipped tables, how much more often did he recline at tables? Was Jesus known as a table flipper? Was Jesus known to be an angry, short-tempered man? Go, go back, since, since JT is trying to undermine me, go back to Ephesians 4. And look at verse 26. I kid, of course. This Paul and James are, are perfectly in line with each other. Paul does not undermine James. James does not underline Paul. Therefore, it was good that we read the Ephesians 4 passage. All right? Now that the disclaimer is out of the way. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry. Check. I can do that. Right? No problem. Be angry and do not sin. So if you can be angry without sinning, if you can have pure, holy anger, go ahead and get angry. Anyone? But even if, let, let's allow for the possibility that there are times, because Paul is instructing Christians here, let's, let's allow for the, the likelihood that there are in fact times when a Christian can exhibit righteous anger, right? That, that is possible, and at times that, that probably does even need to happen. Notice, though, what Paul goes on to say in verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Here's what I think Paul is getting at in that statement there, which works out perfectly with what James is saying in 119. 
by saying, be angry, but so long as it's a sinless anger. If it's a righteous anger, go ahead. But don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. I think what Paul is indicating there is that anger is, because of its intensity and its power, is a dangerous emotion. And that even if you and I were to have a moment of righteous anger, because of the weakness of our flesh, because of the fact that we still battle with sin and impurities, it does not take long for even a righteous anger to be corrupted and to become sinful anger and an opportunity for the devil to come in and work harm and destruction in me and through me. That's why Paul says, you better not be holding on to that anger for long, even if it is righteous anger. And so James says in 119, be slow to anger. The truth of the matter is that for most of us, As one wise man said, holy anger belongs in a state of sanctification to which we have not attained. James is writing about us, and he's writing to us. It's a good reminder and a deserving rebuke. Your anger, your hasty, intemperate speech is not in the pattern of righteousness that God is calling you to live, is calling you to work out. If that's the case, if what so much of what we encounter in life, and I think this idea of listening and speech and anger, these are just representative examples you could you could go to anything anything that's, that does not count as righteousness ought to be set aside right because righteousness is what we're after is what we're seeking to live by so you could insert in there selfishness lust gossip anything like that but because so much of what we encounter in this life, so much of what we encounter just naturally is not in line with God's righteousness, then the question becomes, well, what in the world are we supposed to do about all this? And that's where verse 21 comes in. Because in verses 19 and 20, we are to be about the righteousness of God, that our lives are to look more and more like Christ, and his righteousness. Therefore, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the excess of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The way to kill sinful desires, sinful responses, Irrational behavior is to go to the Word. Notice here that what the language that's used, 
he starts in verse 21 by saying to put off, put aside or put off all of this filthiness. That's metaphorical language that, that oftentimes was used in everyday life to talk about putting off an article of clothing. So you, you take off, right, the sinful behaviors and conducts that used to clothe your life. And then you would expect him to say, which is what Paul often does in his letters in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, you would expect him to come back and say, put off all of this and then put on these righteous behaviors. But he doesn't do that. Rather, he says, put off all of this wickedness and filth, and in the place of put on righteous behavior, he says, receive the word. I think in James' mind, and in this passage of Scripture, what we're to understand is the way that we actually go about putting on the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ in real life, is by clothing, us, clothing ourselves in the Word of God, being immersed and saturated in the Scriptures. Let me say a couple things here about this statement to receive the implanted word. The, the nature of this receiving and the necessity of it. One, let's, let's start off with a little bit of an oddity. What does it mean to receive the implanted word? If it's implanted, if the word is in you, you've already got it. What, what is he talking about? Receive it. Doesn't that sound odd to you? If it wasn't already implanted, then maybe that would make sense. Receive the word so that it can be implanted. But here James is saying, you already have the word implanted in you. Receive it. Well, of course I've received it. It's in me. Hold your place here. Look at what Peter does. Flip over just a couple pages to 1 Peter. This is, I think, a helpful way to repicture or reimagine what James is saying. I think Peter and James in this instance are saying the exact same thing, but they're using different metaphors and images. So start with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter says, You have been born again not of seed, which is, in, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. You have been born again through an imperishable seed, which is the Word of God. That lines up beautifully with what James says in 1.18, that in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. Peter says the same thing. You've been born again by the imperishable seed of his word. So in one sense you could say, perhaps, well, using the imagery of a seed, the seed of new life, which is God's word, it's that seed that's planted within us. So that's, that's James 1.21. Receive the word implanted as that seed of new life. But then look at what Peter does just a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, 
long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Fancy words here. God does a monergistic, monergistic, a singular work. He works by himself in our conversion when he plants his word in us and gives us new birth. From that point on, once we have entered into this new life, it becomes a synergistic work, meaning we work with God as we grow in this life that he's given us. I can no more give myself new life, new spiritual birth, than an infant can give birth to themselves. That being said, once I have entered into this life, then as a loving father coming along his newborn child, he begins to care for and instruct and teach and train and gives me the insight, the understanding, the tools and the resources to know what this life is all about and what it ought to look like. Therefore, James says, if you have been born again by the word of God, the way that you will grow in your righteous living is through that same word. If you come on Sunday morning and God's word is dead to you, if you open your Bible at home and it is little more than words on a page, is it possible, is it possible that one of the reasons that you are not able to receive God's word in the way that he intends one of the reasons that you are not longing for God's word like a newborn baby longs for milk to be fed. Is it because, as James says in verse 21, that while you're opening God's word with one hand, you're also clinging to filthiness and wickedness with the other? Men and women, listen to me, if we can be very blunt and very direct. <clears throat> if you go through your week feeding on filth, whether that would be something as gratuitous as pornography or just the riotous imaginations of your own mind, if that's, if that's your diet through the week and then you come on Sunday morning expecting, hoping to receive a word from the Lord, more often than not, you are going to be sorely disappointed. When, when you are feeding on garbage, let's be more specific, when you are feeding on sinful things, it is hard for you to find the Word of God to be sweeter than honey.
when you chase after other things, even things which in and of themselves may be fine and good and even gifts and blessings from God, to the neglect of God's Word, it should not surprise you that you are not able to find God's Word to be more valuable to you than gold. If God's Word falls flat on your heart or on your mind, it may be that you need to take special attention to the very first part of verse 21, and you need to do a thorough house cleaning. We come and we want to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We want to see that with the eyes of faith. How are you going to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? If you've got filth and muck just covering your eyes and obscuring your view, how are you going to see with any kind of clarity or focus the things that will feed and delight your soul? if you only try to look at it through one eye while keeping an eye to the things of the world. Make no mistake about it. God, in His grace and in His mercy, uniquely, sovereignly brings us into new life by the power of His Word through His Spirit. And then he sets us about the course and the preparation of training ourselves by his spirit, by his word, to learn to live this new life that he's given us. You will not live a healthy Christian life if you are not laboring to do so. The Christian life is not easy. Having said that, let me say something about the necessity of receiving the word. Verse 21, put all of this filth and this wickedness aside. In humility, receive the word which has been implanted in you. Respond to it. Welcome it. Live by it. Receive it, right? This implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That sounds like, it sounds like James is saying that if you don't receive the word in, in this new life that you claim to have, that if you reject God's word, if you ignore it, if you're not living by God's word, it sounds like James is saying, your soul may not be saved in the end. Oh, come on, Merritt. Once saved, always saved. Yes. But the work of salvation is a resurrecting work. It gives new life 
to dead sinners. And that new life means that there is something that comes with that salvation. There is a new life, a new nature that comes with it. Listen, hold your place here. Go, Jesus himself, turn to John chapter 8. Start with me at verse 30. John 8, 30 and 31. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Yes. Conversions, professions of faith. Yes, coming to Christ. Verse 31. So... Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples. If you don't continue in my word, if we can do the counterstatement, what would that mean according to Jesus? You don't belong to me. Skip a little bit further in the chapter. Go to verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What if you don't keep his word? It sure sounds like Jesus is saying, if you don't keep my word, you are not one of my disciples, and your life is going to end in death and judgment. Is it any wonder then that James says in verse 21, Receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. God does not redeem, save, regenerate a people and then set them off to the side and let them be to live according to their own impulses and their own desires. With all of the new life that God has given to us in Christ with his spirit, God continually calls his people forward day after day after day. Every day that you wake up is another day for you to follow Christ and to keep his word. And the minute that you turn your life away from Christ and keeping his word is the day that you need to begin to ask yourself whether or not you truly belong to Christ or should have any confidence that you are truly one of his disciples. If you're here and this sounds very intimidating, It probably should sound intimidating to all of us, just to be blunt, right? But listen 
Listen to God's word. Hear it as a call, a merciful and gracious call. Because the God who commands you to receive his word, the God who commands you to put aside all filth and wickedness and sin and unrighteousness, the God who gives that command will give you what you need to obey that command. So if you're here and you believe that you truly are one of his children, you believe that you are a follower of Christ, but your heart is cold and dead to his word, I have good news for you. Because your father has given you life and wants you to enjoy life in Christ to the fullest. If you ask him to give you what you lack, he will give it as a good gift. And if you are here and you have been, have been led to believe that Christianity is much about cultural sensibilities, just sort of a code of ethics, right? It's about respectability. You don't have any idea that what it means to have new life is to have life that is given by God's word in the preaching of Christ, in union with Christ. You're coming to find and see, I think I may be dead. I have good news for you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the one who has put his hope in him will not be disappointed. Edgewood, my hope and prayer in a passage like this is that we become more and more the kind of church who not only because we just love God's word, because we want to grow in the knowledge of God, but we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we look and sound more like him, and that everything that we do the goals that we set, the aspirations that we have, the way that we interact with each other in our homes, the way that we bear witness to Christ in the workplace, everything ultimately would be brought back to the measure and standard of what God has revealed in his written word and in his living word, the person of Jesus Christ. And that as we continue to respond to the word that God has graciously planted within us and come back to his word over and over again, that we would feel, spiritually speaking, the thrill of righteousness being produced in our lives. That we would get that taste and that we would, as Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for ears to hear your words as words of life, to be able to hear our shepherd Jesus call to us. How thankful we are that our eyes have been opened to see our need of a Savior, that we have recognized your Son as the one who saves us from our sin. 
And Father, help us not to become apathetic or cold or distant from that word that brings us into this life so that we would continue to return to your word over and over again and to find our lives being renewed day by day through the riches of your word that we would know that your spirit is alive and at work in us making your word effective that we would be able to see in one another the likeness of Christ taking shape and taking form in the way that we speak, in the way that we respond, the way that we live in any and every situation. Father, grant to us as individuals and grant to us as a body a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can only be satisfied by the life that is offered in Jesus Christ. And do it, Father, for your glory and for the exaltation of your Son. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.